to the CrocCast, a podcast for peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. Hello, and welcome to the CrocCast, peace studies conversations convened by the Croc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame. I'm David Courtright, Professor Emeritus of the Practice at the Kroc Institute and Director of the Global Policy Initiative at the Keough School of Global Affairs. I'm also the editor of the Kroc Institute's Peace Policy publication. Our latest issue features a set of three reflections drawn from a new book, Catholic Peacebuilding and Mining, Integral Peace, Development, and Ecology, which has been published by Routledge Press in January. I'm joined today by the authors of three pieces that are highlighted in the book and that are also in the new issue of Peace Policy. First, uh, one of the co-editors of the book and the assistant director of the Catholic Peacebuilding Network is Cesar Montevecchio. Welcome, Cesar. Thanks for having us here, David. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Uh, Next, we have uh, Father Rigobert Minani, SJ, head of research for the Peace, Human Rights, Democracy and Good Governance Department at the Center for the Study of Social Action in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and team leader for the Ecclesial Network of the Congo Basin Forest. Welcome, Father Manani. Thank you very much. And finally, we're honored to have with us Catherine Marshall, Senior Fellow at Georgetown University's Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace, and World Affairs, and Executive Director of the World Faith's Development Dialogue. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you, good morning. Caesar. I'll start with you. Uh, before we dive into the highlights of your article and each of the pieces in the new journal, tell us a little bit about the genesis of the book. Why did the Catholic Peacebuilding Network begin to explore the intersections between Catholic peacebuilding and the question of mining? It's a pretty simple story. Honestly, the Catholic Peacebuilding Network is a network of about two dozen organizations around the world, including universities and bishops' conferences. And we try to bridge all of these entities and really make it so that the Catholic community is working with greater unison on issues of peacebuilding, so that academics are aware of what's happening with on-the-ground peacebuilders, so on-the-ground peace builders are able to benefit from research that scholars are doing, so on and so forth, to bring these entities together to better strengthen their, their mutual efforts. Again and again and again, we kept hearing from our partners that mining was an increasingly important issue, an increasingly important problem for peace and conflict in their, in their areas. And CPN always operates by allowing our partners to kind of set our agenda and our priorities for us. And so as we started hearing this more and more, it became clear that this was something we needed to take on as a major initiative, because there did seem to be a rather large gap in terms of looking at this issue specifically. There's a lot done on mining and corporate social responsibility. There's material on mining and development. There's material on mining and ecology and all of those issues independently. But we thought it would be really valuable to kind of tie all those things together through peace building as a focal point. 
And the other piece of it was noticing that there's a lot of action from the Catholic community, but there wasn't a lot of theory. The praxis was ahead of the theory. And so it seemed like one of the important pieces of that initiative would be to do something research-based like a book that could try to close that gap and bring the theory and the research and learning a little bit closer to where the practice was and to help make the practice, to give the practice a little bit more basis in some reflection and some theology and some ethics that it can be a little, have a little stronger footing for being able to do the work that it was doing. Thank you. Father Minani, let's move to you. Your piece and your chapter in the book explores the particular context of your work in Kinshasa and the Congo, the DRC, and the ways the church has promoted good governance and advocated for more just policies in the mining sector in your region. Tell us a little bit about a work, the work of the church and what you've done in this regard. As it is known, uh, the Catholic Church in the DRC, it has known to be at the front line for social change and uh, for uh, political engagement. But at the same time, DRC is a country that uh, uh, has its own economy organized around the question of the mining. In 2000, in 2000, from 2000, Bishop Conference discovered that even if the country itself is very uh, rich, most of its population are very poor, and they started to complain how uh, a country can be like that. So they decided to invest in understanding all the problematics on uh, um, governance of natural resources, and uh, especially mining. They finished by putting, uh, establishing and this is the only one case I know on the continent, a commission, a special commission for governance of natural resources. Uh, uh, that commission, Episcopal Conference, uh, uh, Commissions, um, that has department in almost all the dioceses of the DRC. Well, tell us a bit more about the work of the commission and how you interact with the local communities. Yeah, the commission, the first thing for, uh, for the commission, it was first to uh, create a kind of awareness, even among bishops. And then they uh, started doing a good job on uh, uh, lobbying for uh, uh, good governance of natural resources. They were behind all the campaign of supporting the Dodd-Frank uh, legislation uh, during, during that time. They are a champion on accompanying local communities to monitor the way big companies are exploiting natural resources in their area or reporting on that. And they have a kind of dev team of people monitoring all this, the situation and organizing local community to advocate locally, nationally, and internationally. Catherine, your chapter takes a more global approach and looks at the role of religious actors in engaging with the extractive industries, as well as the ethics of these engagements. Talk to us, please, a bit about how you came to this work and where you see the conversations needed to move in terms of religious actors engaging the mining sector. I come at this really from two quite separate angles. One is my own background, where I worked for many years as an operational manager in the World Bank dealing often with strategic and practical issues related to mining and other extractive industries, notably forestry, even fisheries. 
in the irony here is that these resources are seen and are a major source of the potential growth and therefore resources for education, health, all the other good things. But they also are so problematic and so complex that they are often known as a curse. The curse is both an economic curse, but it is also, as Caesar has highlighted, a source of conflict, tension, and corruption, massive corruption in many cases linked to mining deals. So that's the first angle that I've dealt with many different countries, including DRC, but also Philippines, the um, Northern Triangle countries, many other countries in Africa, as they have grappled with these broad strategic questions of how to develop the mining industry without it being extractive and to negotiate effectively and in a balanced way with the with the major companies, the large, powerful companies that are part of it. The second focus is that for the past two decades, I have worked on a basic question, which is what's religion got to do with it? Where does religion come into the picture? How important is it? Is it a big player, a little player? And obviously that varies tremendously. And what are the policy implications? And the story of the Catholic Church, but also other religious traditions, the Anglican Communion, a number of other local governments, uh, national governments, have played particularly important roles. But I think what's important here is how seldom it is fully understood, these roles, how seldom they are really part of the conversation. And again, the formal discussions, the high-level discussions, but also local discussions around religious communities as witnesses of what is happening at the local level. And in a sense, bringing some of the basic ethical issues into the conversation is a particularly important and interesting role given this central broad problem of extractive industries and mining. Yeah. Could you tell us specifically some of those ethical issues and maybe an example or two of how they play out? in a particular locality? In many ways, I think the, the most fundamental issue is the inequality between the players. In other words, the power of mining companies because of their wealth to come in. Where we see that very vividly is vis-a-vis -vis indigenous communities. Many of the most underexploited uh, mining opportunities in the world now are in rather remote areas where indigenous populations play particularly important roles. So the rights of those indigenous communities have often been severely trampled. The Amazon, uh, but also the, Con uh, the Congo Basin, the Zaire Basin is a prominent, are both prominent examples. So the basic issue of hearing the voices of local communities, finding meaningful ways for them to participate in decisions, and then the free prior informed consent, which is a process that has emerged, uh, is particularly important. The second one, which for many people is the essential ethical issue, though to my mind it's only one, is the issue of corruption. 
and the massive amounts of money that have been associated. So you have the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, EI, uh, TI++, and a number of others, where I think one of the interesting questions is how to tap more effectively into the wisdom uh, and knowledge, the witness of the religious communities, local, uh, but also global. Very interesting. Uh, Father Manani, could you maybe uh, pick up from Catherine Marshall's point here, maybe uh, if you have an example of a community in DRC, uh, perhaps one of the indigenous local communities that's uh, experiencing the problems and, and the, the realities of the inequality and corruption that exist? Uh, and this was the basis of the involvement of the church in this area. Uh, one thing is that to, to know that you have big companies coming to exploit minings or forests, but around them, uh, most of the population are very, very poor. And this was uh, one of the scandals that uh, the church starting to voice on. The second, it is all the conditions of work of local populations. Most of the people, especially those working around mining companies in what we call artisanal mining, they work in a condition where human rights are not respected, where they put their life in danger, where there is not basic structures to keep them live uh, with dignity. And, and then, and finally, we, you have uh, from the point of environment, all the destruction that uh, uh, brings the big companies working in mining. Most of the time, they pollute water, they pollute the environment, and, and there is no one to correct that. The situation of local population, when they are not protected by anybody, where there is not a good organization, where there is a state that doesn't function well, very helpless in this kind of situation. If I might just follow up there, just any examples where you've been able to try to get some accountability to the companies or try to support the efforts of the communities? Yes, we started, uh, the church started uh, with the support of uh, our center, uh, our, our center that we have. I, I work myself in the Jesuit center where we started to investigate on um, this kind of subject. And we managed after pressure on the government and on the company to revisit some of the contracts so that it can include a number of, of uh, uh, dispositions that are uh, favorable for communities. Even if we succeeded to reach the agreement on the revision of contract, at the end of the day, when it was the time to conclude, we were excluded because there is the question of confidentiality in contract that doesn't allow third parties to be part of the discussion. Even if you succeed theoretically on having the principle that you have to revise the way they proceed, at the end of the day, you are not able to guarantee that. But we manage at least, I think we are almost among the few countries in Africa where the church, other actors, civil society actors, and other actors manage to impose or to actors to revise contracts that they were signed during the war. Something that is very particular in, in DRC, it is known that uh, behind all this boom of mining, especially the new mining, Coltan and the others, we, there is also war. So the consequences of the war on the population was very uh, destructive. And we managed to address also this kind of, of issue. So there is a, a kind of some successes, but I can not say that they were full success, no. 
to continue this conversation of solutions or policies. Uh, maybe back to you, Caesar. Father Manani mentioned the Dodd-Frank legislative framework. Maybe you could tell us what that is and how it's used and, and maybe your own ideas on policy measures that are being proposed that could perhaps make a difference in this area. The Dodd-Frank piece, it was, of course, the, the landmark legislation that required supply chain transparency about where minerals are sourced from to have that information be publicly accounted for by U.S. companies. There have been similar versions of that kind of legislation that have since passed, for instance, in the European Union to try to just clean up the, the processes, but it's tremendously fraught. There was a lot of criticism in in the DRC, for instance, about whether it just made things worse because of the difficulties that mining sites would have with trying to go through and produce the infrastructure that was necessary for them to do the reporting in order to make themselves compliant with Dodd-Frank. And so at the beginning, there was some upheaval with that, that a lot of research now is saying has since kind of settled out and they're starting to see some of the positive impacts of this more of a more of an open forum in terms of the information and where things are sourced from and the context of those situations. The policy questions more broadly and related to that, there's just so much slipperiness to all of this. And so much of what Catherine and Father Minani were mentioning really help highlight that. And so I guess to answer your question about policy things, I would maybe want to highlight some of these really crucial points of slipperiness. Like Catherine mentioned the free prior and informed consent, which is one of the more important refrains that you hear again and again about trying to defend the rights of communities against big companies. But there's this really funny game that companies will play while they'll start slipping in the language of free prior and informed consultation rather than consent so that it can become a kind of pro forma thing where they can set some very, very simple minimum of what's required to count as consultation legally, but without there being any real force or any real consequence where a community would have either the opportunity or the power to really say no if that was their choice. For instance, one of our chapters written by a group in Peru that works on human rights, particularly indigenous rights in rural areas that are facing problems with mining companies they mentioned that one of the, the bare requirements are that mining companies are only required to post two notices in newspapers, and they don't have to even necessarily list the specific site that they're posting about. And a lot of the communities are speaking indigenous languages, and the newspapers are in Spanish, and they're only circulated in urban areas. And so the people who are affected don't actually really even see them. But this counts as them fulfilling their obligations for free prior and informed consent. And so you can talk about there being transparency, you can talk about there being free prior and informed consent, but then there's a still a whole heck of a lot of excavating you've got to do about how effective the actual policy delineation of those things is. Father Manani mentioned artisanal mining. They're one of the favorite targets for mining companies to criticize. They say, well, they're the ones who are free of policy. They're the ones who aren't as beholden to the legal regulations. And so they're the ones who really do most of the environmental damage. We have to follow all the regulations that are in place. And so we're the ones who are more environmentally friendly as the artisanal miners that you have to have better policy regulation for. But that just gets, I think, to the questions of what a lot of the companies will say is that they do whatever is legally required of them to do. And that gives them coverage. And so 
Catherine mentioned corruption. Father Manani a couple of times has mentioned governance. That's the third actor here. It's a lot easier to convene mining companies and community leaders and CSO advocates to have forums and conversations as the Vatican has done over the years several times, but you can't get government officials to be part of those conversations. And that's where a lot of the change really needs to be activated. And that's where you get into the policy questions, of course. The companies will tend to continue to just do what is allowed. And so getting into those questions of corruption and governance is really where the heart of the matter is. And it really gets at the peace building part of it, because most people are familiar with the conflict minerals idea that people literally fighting over control of minerals and trying to control who gets to profit from them and how that drives conflict and war, as in the case of the DRC. But then there's a much more nuanced situations of how mining in, impacts conflict, like in Colombia, where you have a national peace agreement trying to be implemented, even though mining isn't specifically mentioned in the agreement, trying to adjudicate how lands being open to mining are factoring into the economic development aspects of that agreement and how the rights of communities are becoming questioned and how environmental destruction is becoming a problem. So it impacts issues of conflict in very, very complex ways. And a lot of them get at these really important governance and policy questions that are, again, to go back to my word, just very, very slippery. Thank you. Uh, Catherine, I wonder if you could uh, help us uh, understand better these policy dilemmas and especially this idea of consent that uh, Caesar mentioned. Well, consent is is difficult, particularly because communities are rarely completely unanimous. You even get into the issues, for example, of women. And in patriarchal societies, how is their voice heard? And there are too many cases of basically elders within a community essentially being bought off and therefore giving away the goods, so to speak. So the whole concept of the free prior informed consent is, first of all, that it's it's free, that there's a full discussion and open discussion. Uh, second, that it takes place before the mining and that it is adapted to the understandings of the local community. And as a first point, simply their language. But the policies, I think we, we need to recognize stepping back at the question of extractive industries and conflict, that there is great division on what to do. And some of it is very, very context specific, and some of it is pretty broad. Sort of the extremes of it are that countries should be free to use their natural resources as they see fit. At the other extreme is the view that these are damaging both the communities, but also the environment, contributing to climate change. And basically, therefore, that the resources should be left in the ground uh, where they are. And how does that decision process work? It's sometimes in some countries, it's part of a constitutional issue, uh, lots of legislation and plenty of corruption around it. But one factor that, that happens is that uh, if there is conflict, if there is a fragile state, mining companies may not want to invest or they may invest in ways that are essentially ring-fenced, in ways that mean that they're not even really part of the local context. And of course, as Caesar has highlighted, you have 
their actual role in fueling conflict because of the resources, the opportunities for graft, the opportunities also to do good. So I think this is where we're very hopeful that the ethical, but also the locally grounded voice of religious communities can help to move away from some of the stalemates and unconstructive discussions that are taking place in too many parts of the world. Thank you. Uh, Father Manani, can you maybe help us identify, or are there cases where the local communities have really stepped in and tried to get a voice that's trying to address these issues that Catherine and Caesar have identified? Yes, I will. I will address it, uh, something that maybe that we didn't exploit men in the book, but that I'm uh, witnessing now. You know, regulation and the policies they work for uh, from the point of view of the West. You have regulation from the U.S. You have regulation from uh, Europe, but now we have newcomers on the field. Chinese are there. Indians are there. These people they don't comply to regulation. I'm not even sure that they have regulation in their own country. What's happening today, and uh, we are uh, uh, witnessing it now every day, uh, especially in the field uh, where I cover uh, this time, in the forest, you will see because of the regulation in the north, in Europe, Chinese will come, will, they will buy from local communities, because in DRC there is a moratorium, so uh, those who are uh, authorized to exploit our local communities, they will go with this uh, uh, the wood in China, and they will work on that, and they will be sold in Europe. So at the end of the day, the regulations are bad for the government and bad for the communities because communities they don't get anything from uh, from the, the the Chinese themselves and anyway all this kind of uh, uh, regulation that don't don't resolve the problem so i think we need to uh, from the point of view of regulation find a way where new everybody complies on the rules and where there is no possibility of avoiding and uh, using other routes on this Secondly, because of that, there is very big violence on the ground because then local communities, they realize themselves that at the end of the day, they are the one losing everything. And there is tensions between these newcomers and local communities. But what happened is that the Chinese, they are very good in bribery. So they will uh, bribe the government and the local authorities. And these people, they will arrest local communities. We are trying from, uh, um, especially in uh, the, the Ecclesial Network for the Congo Basin Forest, to try to organize local communities to be able to have the voice and uh, address the government on this kind of situation. We are lobbying a lot with local communities to try to address all the outcome of the, all the question of climate change. What Katrina said is, is true. We have situation where we are uh, we are scattered. We don't know in which way to go uh, because when you say it's good to, uh, to, to exploit the uh, natural resources, then you need to be sure that there is a country that is working, that governance is working so that the rules are, are respected. But when we say that things have to stay in the ground and not be exploited, then those coming from the eastern part of the world, uh, China, 
India and other countries there, they are very good in coming and dealing with uh, uh, local authorities and even communities, and they don't respect any law. So it's all very complicated and challenging. Let me ask each of you as we close our conversation, what do you hope the readers of the article in the book and our listeners here will take away from uh, this information and maybe something they can do to try to improve the conditions for mining in the local communities? Uh, maybe Catherine, if we could start with you. The case of mining, I think, offers a fascinating illustration of both the global dimension of very practical issues, but also how that global dimension connects to the very, very local. How one moves from exploitation, from simply running roughshod over local communities in even the national interest, as well as personal greed, I think requires both the international regulations and frameworks that we've talked about and real, honest, robust processes of engaging and believing in respecting local communities. And I think we're very hopeful that the religious communities that are so present, that have day-to-day knowledge of how these issues play out, can play a much more structured, active role in the global and national discussions of these issues. Thank you. Uh, Caesar. I think the subtitle in our book is Integral Peace Development and Ecology, and it's deliberate language that we're borrowing from what's become a really ubiquitous concept in Catholic ethical thought about everything being integrated and being integral. And it's become almost a bumper sticker slogan from Pope Francis's encyclical Laudato Si to say everything is connected. And it's not the most earth shattering of insights, but the value of what Pope Francis has done with that idea is the way he's really, really dug down and tried to emphasize that idea and overemphasize that idea and just really pound it home and draw out the real implications of it to make the idea very clear and to give it gravity. I think that would be an important takeaway from what we're trying to do with this book is just getting people to recognize and be mindful of the way that everything really, really is connected and the way that Mining Point is frequently one of the connecting points. It's one of the the centerpieces of those connections in a lot of ways. For instance, green energy. You can't think about green energy without thinking about the mined resources and minerals that are necessary to enable green energy. And then you have to think about the communities where that mining takes place and how inequitable is the access to green energy in the global north versus places in the global south where those minerals are being mined and the economic development implications and the conflict implications just very much taking seriously that for every solution, there are some caveats that need to be considered carefully. For every problem, there are a couple of other tertiary and ancillary problems that need to be factored into how you're considering and thinking about it. And just really always staying mindful of the way that these connections globally, locally, global north, global south, just the way that these connections are all woven together and to be real solutions, they need to be able to account for that. Thank you. I, I think of that integrated aspect in realizing that our phones, our mobile phones, our electric vehicles, and so much of the emerging technologies depend on 
these resources, we need to maybe figure out a way to have people be conscious of products that are conflict-free and climate-friendly, which would have to encompass this mining issue. Father Manani, uh, your thoughts on what you hope readers and listeners will take away? Yeah, uh, especially after uh, COP26, I think people, they will understand more clearly that there is a clear link between extractive industry and uh, the question of environment. Because sometimes people tend to separate. But in our experience, it's very clear today that extractive industry is linked to the question of peace and security on one side. And it is in the, it's a direct link with the question of deforest, deforestation, land grabbing, contamination of water and, and air. It's good to, to approach this problematic globally. Uh, and uh, I agree with Cesar when he's speaking of uh, integral ecology. And this is the way I think we understand that people reading this book they will be able to have a global understanding of this kind of things. Well, thank you to each of our guests and thank you to all of you who are listening. And if you wish to check out the new issue of Peace Policy, go to peacepolicy.nd.edu. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the CrocCast, peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. You can find all episodes of the CrocCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates, stories, and videos from the Croc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening.